Hello and welcome to Making of Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to write his dissertation, teach a class, raise an infant, get a job, and survive quarantine. Um, this is the sixth episode in a series on work and play in the Industrial Revolution, which is sometimes regular, sometimes irregular, sometimes weekly, and now, for the next couple days, it is daily, until I run out of effort, energy, or get hit by the coronavirus. Uh, this podcast series is following a class that I'm teaching at UC Berkeley uh, called Work and Play in the Industrial Revolution, where I teach a group of young, excited, committed undergraduates writing by boring them about uh, my interest in work and play in the Industrial Revolution. Uh, if this is the first episode you're listening to, go back to the first episode. Uh, it might put things in context. So the broad story of what we've been talking about so far is that uh, over the Industrial Revolution, people started to work more. They didn't necessarily work more hours in a day. They were already working a lot of hours in each day, but they worked more Days. They had fewer holidays. They had fewer days off during the week. Uh, they went uh, uh, less often to do fun things like go off to a local wakes or a fair or, you know, something like that. And instead, they worked more longer, regular hours. But then over the 19th century, this began to change and people started, uh, depending in different industries at different times and at different speeds, but people started to work less in each day. And there were movements amongst organized labor to get people to have organized time off for like a week or two with pay or without pay uh, so that they could do something that to us is very normal, but what then was pretty novel to have a vacation. And that is what we're going to be talking about today, uh, the British vacation in the Industrial Revolution. So first, I'm going to just tell you the broad story really, really quickly. The broad story is this. Back in maybe the early 18th century and before, when you went on vacation, the people who did were really wealthy aristocrats. And what they did is they would go on something called the Grand Tour. Uh, you've heard of this. It's when a, a, a rich young son or daughter of some well-off family goes and does a tour, a circle uh, of the big cultured sites on the continent. They go to France and learn French and, you know, keep pores and visit the plays. They go to Italy and get get pictures. They, they travel around Europe and they get an idea of, 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 of what it is to be European. Then, uh, at the eight, later 18th century, this begins to change, and, and you get a new class, the middle classes, uh, 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 or the upper middle classes, who start to take individual tours themselves, not necessarily when they're young kids with, with time and, and money to burn, but more as a way to amuse themselves. Uh, and then, in the middle of the 19th century, you have a beginning of the era of mass tourism, where working class people get to go to these same places and do these same things and have fun in hotels. So that's the big general overview, grand tour to individual tours to mass tourism. Now, I just want to bring up uh, just one of the big themes that I see in this, um, and that is twofold. First, I think that something that 
that you see when you look at the history of tourism in Britain is how it is really, really tied up in, 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 in social class. What is right to do when you have spare time is really dependent on what social class you are from. What is inappropriate to do, what is mawkish or uh, in a, you know, or wrong or uncool, it, it really depends what class you come from. And, and related to that is this idea of authenticity. Uh, we, we can see this in the modern vacation in America today. We have this idea that when we go on vacation, we go to some foreign country to, 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 to celebrate our own spring break, or we go on our own grand tours, that what we should be doing is we should be having an authentic experience. It's wrong to go to Hawaii and go off to one of those big resorts and just do a resorty thing and eat at the buffet and never go out and meet any of the locals and never go to, a, you know, always stay on some sort of vacation compound. That is wrong. That is lower caste, gauche, and bad. What it means to be a good traveler is to go out to some Airbnb and, you know, hike a, a, a city that you've never been before and go into the real, you know, insert touristic destination X. So those two ideas of, of, of class and authenticity, I think you can see them, you know, forming at this time. It is authentic for a rich person uh, to go off on the grand tour and experience the delights of Europe, but it's inauthentic for a working class person to do the same thing. If a working class person were to go to a hotel, they would be doing it wrong. There would be some sort of sense of artificiality that would poison the experience. And you see in people discussing the rise of tourism in the 19th century, the worry that previously untouched beautiful places of, of natural or cultural beauty that were once the resort of the rich are going to be turned inauthentic tourist traps because they have to now cater towards the mass. So those are the big overarching themes. Um, because I'm tired and maybe coming down with a cold, I'm just going to talk about two big things that change in the 19th century. And that is uh, the change in how people appreciated wilderness or nature and the rise of capitalist entrepreneurs who made a consumer vacation society. So. First, I just want to talk about the change in nature because I find it really fascinating. When I'm out with my wife and we are on some touristic jaunt, what she always wants to do is she will look at me and she'll say, Brendan, I want to go off and I want to look at nature, which means climbing some mountain on some path and looking at some vista, usually with a bunch of trees and probably a lake and maybe a little tiny village that we can visit. But what we want to do is we want to get out into to something real, authentic, green. But what's interesting about this is that you can track the European and American attitude towards wilderness and nature. And in the 17th and 18th century, the same sort of places that we today think of as so picturesque are thought of as disgusting. Um, the wilderness is not something that is to be savored, but it is something to be feared. It is a place of wild animals, a place of chaos and disorder, a place of disease, of backwardness. Um, when you go off to these same places like the Lake District that we now think of as so picturesque and beautiful, people find them startlingly ugly. 
And that is so curious to me. First, because it presents a historical question that I don't think has been adequately answered. Why? Why did this, does this change? And second, because it shows so viscerally this big lesson of history, that things that to us seem fixed and natural actually have a historical dimension. They change. They change because of human things that we can track and understand. So I'm just going to talk a little bit about one of these places, the Lake District, uh, and talk about two of the big explanations for why we might have gotten this change in the idea of nature or wilderness. Um, there's a fantastic essay for, for the Americans out there, uh, well, for everybody, by, by uh, William Cronin called The Trouble of Wil with Wilderness, which talks about uh, the how we can historicize, how we can understand the concept of wilderness as something that has a history itself. So the Lake District is uh, this uh, now to us beautiful area in in, in Cumbria, um, which is dotted with little villages and sheep and and lakes, and um, it is probably my favorite. Uh, vacation destination on earth. You can get good pub food, good beer, walk around and hike and see wonderful vistas and then hang out in a little village pub. It's, it's fantastic. But for most of the 18th century, the Lake District was thought of as a disgusting backwater. What changed? Well, there's two big actors that we can see working together to change the Lake District into something that people found beautiful. The first is Romanticism. In the late 18th and early 19th centuries, you had a bunch of romantics, people who wanted to rediscover authentic feeling um, in response to the polite, fake, manufactured uh, modern world. Uh, and one of these romantic people really made the Lake District what it is today. He was from the Lake District. He spent a lot of time in the Lake District. Some of his most famous poems are based in the Lake District. And, and, and he took a bunch of his fancy literary friends out to the Lake District to visit him. He was the poet William Wordsworth. Um, and William Wordsworth uh, was a really, at the time you read him now, he seems normal. Um, his verse seems just like poetry, but at the early 19th century, when he published his uh, uh, groundbreaking book of poetry, Lyrical Ballads, uh, he, his use of natural language, his, his use of uh, uh, topics that, that, that were about what people were actually seeing was striking and remarkable to people and disgusting. And he wrote a lot about the Lake District, including this most famous poem, which is set in the Lake District. I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high o'er vales and hills, when all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils, beside the lake beneath the trees, fluttering and dancing in the breeze. Continuous as the stars that shine and twinkle on the Milky Way, they stretched in never-ending line along the margin of a bay. Ten thousand saw I at a glance, tossing their heads in sprightly dance. The waves beside them danced, but they outdid the sparkling waves in glee. A poet 
could, a poet could not but be gay in such a jocund company. I gazed and gazed, but little thought what wealth the show to me had brought. For oft when on my couch I lie in vacant or in pensive mood, they flash upon that inward eye, which is the bliss of solitude. And then my heart with pleasure fills and dances with the daffodils. So we've heard this and read this a number of times before, but I want to point out the nature in this poem. Um, he is sitting, um, watching these daffodils on veils and hills. And these, uh, he's underneath some trees that is overlooking a lake and a bay where there's a nice little breeze. This is a description of a particular spot in the Lake District, which if you go on a hike, you can visit. And Wordsworth's descriptions of the Lake District and his tours to the Lake District, his personal tours, bringing people there, taught a number of people how to enjoy the Lake District as beautiful. And so you have this, this kind of romantic education in the wilderness. The next thing that I think really helps wilderness become a lot less scary and more beautiful are railroads. Um, it's really hard to get to the wilderness without railroads, paved roads, and other forms of mechanized transport. But during the 19th century, uh, when you get the, the steam-powered locomotive, um, people start to build railway lines to areas of natural beauty as purpose-built tourist destinations. One of the first in Britain was the Lake District. The Lake District got a line from London. You could go to London, hop onto a train, and go to the Lake District in a matter of hours, and it became swamped with tourists who brought with them their books of William Wordsworth and their tour guides that taught them how to enjoy the scenery that they were seeing. In other similar uh, stories of, of places like uh, Yosemite that were once considered disgusting and scary bits of wilderness that then became um, beloved, I think that you see a similar story of, of, of transportation making them more accessible. So the other thing that I want to talk about is how vacations were uh, created in part through capitalist entrepreneurs who were participating in a consumer society. When we think about the old style of amusements, you don't really think about any kind of entrepreneurialism, right? Like, I mean, sure, there's wakes and fairs where people make money and, and have shops and like maybe like make some cash with a Punch and Judy show or a bear baiting. But there's not this sense of people innovating. There's not a sense of particular kinds of business people who are coming up with ideas to try to you know, make money on a mass market. But that is what you start to get in the 19th century. First, there is a market for a number of different things that people can use where they go on their vacation. Um, there is a market for guidebooks and for uh, backpacks and, and, and uh, uh, footwear and other things that you would wear while you are walking. Um, in the 19th century, there is a thing called a clawed glass, which is a tiny... Um, little bit of uh, 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 you know uh, 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 convex glass that you take with you as you're traveling and when you find a place of, of, of natural cultural beauty you turn your back to it and you you hold up your clawed glass uh, and slide in a piece of tinted paper into the back and look at 
at the thing that you're meant to be looking at in the reflection of the clawed glass, and it works like an Instagram filter. People were crazy for their clawed glasses, and they would uh, set them up and stare at the reflection of, say, like, you know, a beautiful castle in the clawed glass instead of looking at directly. But this was a consumer good that was mass-produced for a mass market who were educated in advertisements and guidebooks about what to buy when they enjoyed themselves on their vacation. Um, the really big story here is the development of the package holiday by Thomas Cook. You might have heard the name Thomas Cook because his name in Britain is synonymous with going on vacation. Um, there's a Thomas Cook Airlines, uh, there's a Thomas Cook uh, Travel Agents, there's Thomas Cook Guidebooks, and Thomas Cook was a guy in the 19th century who was in, involved in the temperance movement. He wanted to get people to stop drinking so much. And he organized a trip on the railway to a big temperance gathering. Um, and he found that he had a knack for it. He was able to negotiate uh, the price for his, his uh, group of people on the railway, so he got a good price. He organized what to do when he got to the place that he was going to. He organized the hotels. And this spawned in time a massive organization where Thomas Cook would take middle and working class people all over Britain and Europe for package tours. And this really made the idea of a vacation something that was in reach of a lot of people. Um, in the later part of the 19th century, you get an entire kind of city that is devoted to this kind of working class tourist holiday, the Seaside Resort. Now, it's fun to look at these because, uh, you know, Britain is not the warmest place on earth, and so they always look really cold. Um, but these are palaces of the people uh, that are built for working class people to go off and have a nice trip to the holiday. I should really speak more on this, but I'm getting tired and I have a cold, so I will be back with you guys tomorrow um, when we will be discussing servants. <laughs> <laughs>